You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The Chief Constable's leaving party took place at the canteen of Lothian and Borders Police HQ on Fetis Avenue. He was heading to a new post south of the border and no one seemed to know whether anyone would take over his role. The eight regional Scottish forces were soon to be amalgamated into something called Police Scotland. The chief of Strathclyde had been given a top job, leaving seven of his colleagues scratching around for fresh opportunities. A perfunctory attempt had been made to turn the canteen into a festive location, meaning a couple of banners, some streamers and even a dozen or so party balloons. Tables had been covered with paper tablecloths. There were bowls of crisps and nuts and bottles of wine and beer. The cake's arriving in half an hour, Siobhan Clark told Rebus. Then I'm out of here in 20 minutes. You don't like cake? I don't like speeches. Ian Rankin is the author of 18 novels featuring John Rebus through a variety of incarnations and ranks. He's won the Edgar Award, the Golden Dagger, the Diamond Dagger for Lifetime Achievement, and the Chandler Fulbright Award. He brought John Rebus back into print with Standing in Another Man's Grave. His new Rebus mystery is Saints of the Shadow Bible. Thank you for joining me, Ian. Thank you. You know, one of the things that I was thinking of as I read this book was that we're in a time now that, with regards to the way that mysteries are being written, and in particular police procedurals, and I think that this book is really like charges out into this kind of brave new world of consolidated policing and, hmm. and what's happening in Scotland and England in a really interesting manner. Well, I, I, I mean, thanks. There's a yeah, I mean, it's an interesting time to be a writer in, in Scotland, in the UK at the moment. I mean, you've got political crisis, you've got economic crisis, and we've got specifically in Scotland this vote coming up in September 2014 as to whether we want to remain part of a union with England and the rest of the UK, or do we want to split and go our own separate way? Um, and so as an author, you're thinking, well, how does this impact on my characters? How does it impact on me? And how, how, how do I deal with both of those? And I've always written novels to make sense of the world. I've always written stories from the age of 10, 11, 12 to try and make sense of this very complex world around me and give it a shape, give it a form. And also, in a very therapeutic way, get to play God. You get to have the power of life and death over your characters and you get to structure things the way you want them structured. And so all of that stuff's got to, you know, all that stuff gets channeled into the next book, the book that I sit down to write, in this case, Saints of the Shadow Bible. There's all this soup in my head, you know, getting mixed, stirred around, and there's all these ingredients that aren't quite coalescing yet, bits of politics and bits of police reorganization, and you're going, how much of this do I need to put in to explain to the reader that, in fact, there are these huge changes going on? But for many readers around the world, they couldn't give a, a, a tuckney darn as to whether the police have been reorganised in Scotland or not. They just want this guy Rebus to be solving another case. Um, but for my own sort of satisfaction, I, I want to put in some of that to show that this is the real world or as close to the real world as we can get. But, you know, I, I think that the changes that Rebus is, are, 
and his people are going through are changes that are happening everywhere. I think it, you do a great job of exploring that with these characters. And this is a book where the characters just, we have so much fun seeing these people on the printed page. There is not a word, not a sentence, not a page that goes by when we aren't happy to see <laughs> whoever we encounter there. And I think it seems to me you must have had a lot of fun writing this book. Yeah, I did. I mean, go back a few years and Rebus had to retire. He reached a retirement age. And so I, that was it as far as I was concerned. But I knew that he would not want to leave the police force. So he would continue working as a civilian for a small unit in Edinburgh that existed that deals with cold cases. So then when I got an idea for a cold case book, I thought, well, I can bring Rebus back because the plot needs someone like him to be to be um, involved as a detective. But I'd also invented this other guy called Fox, who's internal affairs. Then I discovered that internal affairs, you don't go in there for the, your whole career. You go in there for three or four or five years, and then you're out again back into normal policing duties. So eventually I thought I can put the two characters together. Rebus rejoins the police because they've put up the retirement age. Fox is coming out of internal affairs where he has been Rebus's nemesis and is now coming back into normal detective duty, so he needs allies because everybody hates him or mistrusts him because of the kind of job that he used to do. Then you've got Siobhan Clark, who was Rebus's underling for many years. Um, he mentored her. She learned a lot of bad things from him. But when he left the police, she became her own person, and she's risen through the ranks, and she now outranks him. So when he comes back into the police, suddenly Siobhan, half his age, is his boss. So you've got all these interesting, tantalizing relationships that you can play with, which, as you've, as you've rightly pointed out, is a lot of fun for a writer. It's a lot of fun when you don't quite know what your characters are going to do when they meet up. So that when Rebus and Fox in this book have a kind of powwow, they have a summit in the back room of the Oxford bar, I didn't know how that was going to pan out. I didn't know how that would play until I started writing the scene. And then you get this very kind of cautious chess game. You've got Fox, who is incredibly cautious and careful and meticulous all the way through his career, and Rebus, who's always been like a bull in a china shop. And how the two men can sort of deal with each other becomes intriguing. Um, and having to do it through dialogue and just a little, a little bit of painting. You've got a little bit of scene painting. So, for example, Fox is always replacing the glass that he's drinking from exactly on the coaster, exactly on a corner of the table, because that's the kind of person he is. He's almost autistic. And Rebus is kind of slouched and lying back with his kind of jacket off and his arms are kind of stretched out. He's the kind of big alpha male. And you just put a tiny little bit of that in and it makes it a lot of fun for the reader, but it makes it an awful lot of fun for the author. I don't know what these people are going to do until I sit with them on, and watch them on the page and, and see how they, they, they bounce off each other. Well, you know, that's one of the things, too, that's really interesting from a standpoint of mystery readers is that you have two people who have heretofore been antagonists and on the opposite sides of the mystery. To a certain degree, they very much still are. But the way you're writing it as a writer and we experience it as readers is mm. we have sympathy for two people who are completely opposites and I think to achieve that is really interesting. Well I mean but they but they do it just because it's their personalities so you know having invented Rebus and built him up as this kind of maverick cynical cop who's a bit of a dinosaur who's the last of his kind represents the old way of policing then he he's put out to pasture as it were I bring in Malcolm Fox and Fox is a very different kind of mentality a very different kind of philosophy of life and philosophy of policing 
he then, when he encounters Rebus, thinks Rebus should be should be gone. There should be no room for that kind of cop anymore. So he's determined for him never to get back into the police. But then Fox himself needs allies in this new book. And so Rebus, who's back on the force, suddenly becomes a potential ally. And Fox has to... So the positions on the chessboard keep changing subtly all the time. And uh, it keeps you on your toes as an author because you're saying, well, you know, Fox used to be the hero of the books when I wrote the two Fox novels. Then in the previous book where I brought Rebus back, Standing in Another Man's Grave, Fox was the antagonist, not the protagonist. In this book, he's more like a protagonist. Um, so the relationship keeps changing. The characters keep evolving. And that keeps you on your toes as a writer. You can't... It isn't like the old days where the detective would not change. I mean, in classic... In a classic Miss Marple-style series of books... Miss Marple really wouldn't change between books. But these books take place in real time in the real world. And I am, you know, I'm very certain that each case these detectives work on and things that happen in their personal life and the reorganization of the police and what's happening in politics and the economy and the world around them changes them as human beings. And you've got to take that on board. Makes it interesting for the author because you can't get blasé about your characters. They keep, evol- keep evolving. They're not just there to, d- to discover who the killer is. They're not just there to lead the, the reader by the nose through the story. They have much more complexity to them, I think, than the traditional notion of the detective. Uh, I would agree. I think these read in, in many ways like literary novels, except for they're awfully rude and really fun. <laughs> well, they're, they're a roller coaster ride. I mean, they're not polemic. Um, no. You know, I mean, you know, these, these are commercial novels. Um, I'm not being. I'm not sitting in a creative writing program somewhere. I'm not a professor of creative writing. I'm not being paid by the state. If my books don't sell, I don't earn any money. So the books have to be books that people want to buy. Um, so they've got to be entertainments. They are entertainments. But at the same time, there's no reason why a book that isn't an entertainment, that is a roller coaster ride, that is a thriller, shouldn't at its heart have serious things to say about the world and make the reader question very big moral questions. And when I start a book, I don't start necessarily with a, with a mystery. I start with a theme I want to explore. Why is the world the way it is? What makes us do bad things to each other? And there'll be maybe some story that I've read, some news clippings, something that's drilled into my head and it just won't let go. And often it's a, a story plucked from the real world. This novel actually kicked off with, there were two or three things. One was me going to a lot of retirement parties for cops. And them telling stories about the way policing used to be in the 80s and 90s and me thinking, hang on a minute, that's when Rebus started, the 80s. Was he an idealist at some point back then? How did he learn his bad ways? What turned him into the cynical guy we now know? So there was that. Then there was a true story of a cop in England. It was quite a recent story. And he had taken a suspect out for a drive. This guy had been a suspect for a long time. This was a murder case. It had been going on for a long time. And he just talked to the suspect and talked to him and talked to him and took him for a drive. And eventually the suspect said, OK, do you want to see where she's buried? And the cop said, yeah. And the guy took him to a piece of moorland and he said, she's buried there. And then the suspect said, would you like to see another one? Now, the cops in England had no idea that there was more than one victim. Um, and so the detective said, yeah, please. And they drove to another spot and the, the guy said, there's another one buried there. At which point they went back to the police station and the cop got in trouble because he'd broken the rules. When this suspect said, I've killed another person, he should have taken him straight back to the police station, read him his rights and got him a lawyer. He didn't do that. They couldn't prosecute the guy for the second murder. It couldn't go to trial because the rules hadn't been followed. But I thought, that's Rebus. 
This guy is basically rebus in real life. Get a result first, get closure, think about the, 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 what it means later on. Think about the paperwork later on. Think about the protocol later on. And, um, and this guy, this cop in real life has been, you know, I mean, he was almost kicked off the force. He's been, he's been reprimanded, heavily reprimanded for not following rules. But the family of the second victim are so thankful to him because they got, finally got some, got some peace. They, they got closure. That's so fascinating. And that brings up, too, one of the kind of interesting legal themes of this novel is the displacement of double jeopardy. I'd like you to explain what that is in the UK law Mm. and how it's changed. Well, what's happened specifically in Scotland, Mm because Scottish law and English law are very different. Mm -hmm. They are different entities. What's happened in Scotland is it's specifically based, it's one case, one real case, and the case is called the World's End Murders. There's a pub in Edinburgh with the the rather rich name, the World's End, because in the past that was where the city gates were, and beyond that the world ceased to exist. Once you were outside Edinburgh, the rest of the world didn't exist. Um, So these two... Teenage girls, underage drinkers, were drinking in the world's end one night in, I think, October 1977. And that's where they were last seen alive. They turned up dead the next day uh, in a field outside Edinburgh. And police couldn't... I mean, they they had leads, but the case went nowhere for years. And then a cold case unit um, started to get some traction. And eventually there was a guy they thought had done it. But they, because of double jeopardy, they couldn't do anything about it. They could, um, you know, once you've been prosecuted and found not guilty, you can't be re-prosecuted, even if more evidence comes to light. So the the politicians and the judiciary are keen to change the law um, on double jeopardy so that if new evidence comes to light or if you admit to a crime having been found not guilty in a court of law previously, you can be then taken back to court. Um, And I thought, well, that's intriguing. If that does come to be, then what else could wash up? What else that's buried in the past could actually then come to light? Um, And alongside that, we're also thinking of doing away with uh, corroboration. At the moment in Scots law, you need corroboration all the way through, which makes rape cases incredibly difficult because you really want two witnesses to everything. And it's... just doesn't happen in a rape case. It's one person's word against another person's. But it goes all the way through to the the autopsy. When you have an autopsy, there need to be two pathologists present, not just one, so you've got corroboration. Somebody can actually verify what just happened at that autopsy. Um, now, the judiciary aren't keen on that. They aren't keen on corroboration being done away with. It's the, it's the um, politicians who want it done away with so that there could there's a better chance of getting a conviction in certain cases. Wow, this is so fascinating. I know, it is. But it makes it, I mean, it's, in, but it's very, as a novelist, it's very difficult because it's so fluid. The situation in the real world is so fluid. You're, how do you get that, how do you get it right in your book? I mean, this could all change. And, and at the same time, on the 1st of April 2013, they completely changed the structure of the police in Scotland. These people don't think of the writers. They don't think of all the crime writers sitting out there who've got to take all this stuff on board. So there used to be eight regional police squads in Scotland, there's now just one squad called Police Scotland. There's one chief in charge, which means seven chiefs have gone. They've done away with the unit Rebus used to work in, the um, cold case unit in Edinburgh. That's all been um, rationalised. They've done away with Malcolm Fox's department, internal affairs. That's all been sent somewhere else. Um, 
there is no longer a chief constable uh, in, in Edinburgh, there's a chief superintendent, and, and it's all changed. And so all us, all us crime writers sit around in Scotland scratching our heads going, how much of this do we need to tell the reader? If you live in Wisconsin, you don't really care too much about the changes in the structure of the police in Scotland. You're just, you just like this character Rebus, right? But, you know, for my own satisfaction and for the few dozen cops in Edinburgh who do read my books, I do need to put it in. But you've just got to decide how much of it you need to put in. So hopefully, but, you know, even in September, September 2013, I had a play on in Edinburgh for the, my first stage play. And it was about cops in contemporary Edinburgh. And one of the actors said, you know, so all these changes, is there still a CID? Is there still like any criminal intelligence department? And I said, well, yeah, I suppose so. Hang on, I'll phone. And I phoned up a friend of mine who's a detective in Edinburgh. I said, look, does the term CID still exist? And he went, well, kind of. <laughs> what do you mean? He said, we don't really know. He said, we don't really know anything. We don't know what's going to happen in the next few months. This is all still a very fluid situation, which means it's kind of easy to get things wrong in the books. And if I get it wrong, I'm just going to have to blame the politicians and the cops. Well, I think what that gives the book, and this book in particular, is this kind of really nice, twisty, and what I would call a literary feel. It's very textured. There's so much going on, and there's things are so uncertain at every level. It all becomes a means for externalizing. The characters' anxieties are tied up into the politics. And I'd like you to just talk a little bit about the yes versus no <laughs> votes and these characters that you've created who are emblematic of them. I, this is a lot of fun to read. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's tough if you live in Scotland at the moment because the political situation is incredibly febrile. You've got two very antagonistic camps, the no campaign and the yes campaign. And if you stick your head above the parapet one way or the other, you're going to get shot down by one side or the other. Um, so although it's a very interesting time to be a writer, it's also a very dangerous time uh, in terms of making enemies. Um, and I hide behind my characters. So if people say to me, how are you going to vote in September? Are you going to vote yes or no to independence? I say, well, Rebus would vote no because he's a conservative at heart. He fierce change. Um, Siobhan, his younger, more idealistic colleague, would vote yes to independence. She has hope and dreams and stuff. And Malcolm Fox would be right in the middle, sitting on the fence, very cautious, very careful, trying to balance things out. What, what would it mean? What does an independence vote mean? I said, that's more like me. I'm sitting right in the middle next to I've got my arm around Malcolm Fox. We're sitting on that fence and we ain't budging. So I, I can talk about it in terms of my characters. In this book, what I try to do to be kind of fair-minded was to have two characters, one of whom would represent either side of the debate. So we've got um, the justice minister. The justice minister, who eventually ends up being a victim, um, his house having been burgled. Um, he works, I mean, he works as a politician. He's a member of the Scottish Nationalist Party who are in power at the moment in Scotland. He's the face of the Yes campaign. He's the guy who's trying to persuade Scots they do want to have independence. Then you've got this whole colleague of Rebus's who was a cop in the 70s and 80s, then left, had early retirement, became a very successful businessman. And he is the public face of the No campaign. He wants Scotland to remain part of the United Kingdom. So you've got these two very different characters, with both of whom Rebus can interact. He interacts with one because one is a victim in a criminal case, and so Rebus is trying to work out what happened. And the other one is an old colleague, an old mentor of Rebus's, who now is under investigation for things that may have happened in a police station in the 80s. 
And Rebus has to decide which side he's on. And it's not just a matter of which side of the political debate he's on. But is he going to maybe cover up stuff that happened in the 80s because he has an oath of loyalty to these guys called the Saints? These guys who were his colleagues and mentors, who represented a way that policing used to be in Scotland or worldwide, where you could cut corners, where you could change evidence, where you could almost beat a confession out of a suspect and get away with it. That's just the way policing was. Or does Rebus decide that he wants to be on the side of the angels now, in the current day, and that the crimes that happened then cannot be allowed to go unpunished? And so there's a kind of there's a parallel thing there that in that way I'm almost talking about the yes no campaign, but not quite. I'm, I've almost found a kind of uh, an objective correlative for it. I love the the line where um, one of the characters says, "Have you ever seen life on Mars? It's like a documentary." But that was when I was going to these retirement parties for all these old cops, and they were telling these stories of the seventies. I just flashed straight back to that TV show, Life on Mars. And the intriguing thing for me about that show was the original series, what you had was you had a kind of touchy-feely, politically correct contemporary cop who's sent back in time to the 70s, where he encounters this guy, Gene Hunt, who, you know, bottle of whiskey in the bottom drawer, slapping a suspect around, cutting corners, but always getting a result. Gene Hunt became viewers' favourite. We like that kind of cop. We like the fact that he's 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 Mr. Nasty, but he's doing it for the right reasons. He's always getting results. He's always on the side of the victim. Um, he's just got a very different way of going about it, and he doesn't feel constrained by by modern politically correct means of doing anything or filling forms in and stuff. And that's much more like Rebus. Rebus is very much cut from the, the Gene Hunt mould. Um, and so, yeah, you know, Rebus's way of policing in the 70s and the 80s would have been life on Mars. That would have been it. It felt like a documentary. And I'm sure one of the cops at one of these retirement parties said that to me. And I just put, I made a little note to myself and it went straight. And a lot of the stuff that happened in that police station that Rebus reminisces about with his colleagues is stuff that I heard about at, at you know, retirement parties that actually did happen. One of the things that's nice about this book and Rebus as a character is because he has this huge backstory and this whole history, and he can refer to just a little bit, throw a couple sentences out there, and then we as readers in this new incarnation, I mean, you could just start the whole series again with the, the previous book, I think, mm -hmm. can can have, it has this huge resonance feeling. It's like... Uh, you know, uh, a Phil Spector production. <laughs> well, I mean, it, yeah, it adds layers. It adds layers. I mean, you're always wondering as an author, you know, is are people getting it? If it's too nuanced, do will, will long-time fans get it? Will they get that you're referring back to a previous book? And will it confuse new fans for whom this is your first book? So it's, it's, it's a very delicate relationship. If you've got an ongoing series with a, with a detective and there will be echoes of previous cases or things that you would love to refer to, but if you do it too much, then you might confuse or alienate your new readers. Um, so it's a very careful balancing act. And um, you don't really know you've got it right. You don't know if you've got it right, I think, until somebody like you comes along and says, I quite enjoyed that and I got those references and stuff. What you want to make sure is if people don't get the references, they don't get the backstory, it doesn't matter too much. There's still a lot to enjoy in the book. Even if, you've, if you're coming to this as a brand new reader and you've never seen Rebus before or Siobhan before, you will quickly get a sense of their relationship without the need to have read all the previous books. Well, and, and as you pointed out, what's nice is that the relationship has just been inverted. 
<laughs> and this gives you the opportunity to have a lot of fun as a yeah. as a writer and for us as a readers as well. The, I mean, yeah, in, inverted in that you know, Siobhan is now titular fashion Rebus's boss, and he keeps saying to her, you know, are you going to try? Really, you're going to boss me around, really? But you know, she's she's in a difficult situation because this guy has come back into her life. He was retired. He was a civilian. He was working cold cases. During that hiatus, she was able to become her own person. She was able to step out from under his considerable shadow. She's been gone up through the ranks. She's on her way possibly to a very senior position. Rebus comes back into her life, and that can only mean trouble because he's a guy who enjoys breaking the rules, and she cannot be associated with a guy who breaks the rules. Otherwise, her promotion prospects will be, will be uh, tainted. So she has to decide that it's kind of this personal thing about she likes him as a, as a human being, she considers him a friend, but as a colleague, that's a very difficult ask for her. So the relationship has changed. And the, I think the fun thing for me was that having retired Rebus and then not written about him or Siobhan for five years, when I came back to the, those characters in the previous book, Standing in Another Man's Grave, enough time had elapsed that it felt like I was writing about new characters. So the, so the relationships were brand new to me and there was a kind of freshness to their relationship that I think if I'd been continuing writing about them, maybe they would have been in too much of a groove and I wouldn't have been able to change the relationship too much. But I felt that I could because I was coming to them almost as brand new characters. And, uh, and that's been a fun thing. And to take Rebus then out of retirement back into the police for a, as a cop with a demotion back to the rank he was when we first met him in 1987... Um, you know, it just, it's fun. It's fun because I, I do like occasionally torturing the guy as well. You know, there's a little bit of torture involved in this that he's all, I mean, as one character says to him, the character that he's trying to get to confess to a crime, he's going, oh, you're still a detective sergeant. That's the same you were when you used to pester me back in the early days. You know, you haven't, you haven't made any difference to the world at all and you haven't got on in life at all. You're still a detective sergeant. On the other hand, from Siobhan is Malcolm Fox, who again is is just he's a blast and i'd like you to talk about just for you as a writer he must have been a, you you did a couple books about him the complaints and i i just even from the beginning calling the department the complaints <laughs> makes me like it yeah yeah it was, well i mean it was what happened was i retired rebus because he'd reached the retirement age I, I still wanted to write about the cops and i still wanted to write about scotland and, and contemporary edinburgh and I met uh, someone who had worked in the complaints, complaints and conduct department, which is internal affairs. And I, I, it was a female police officer. I took her out for, for a lunch and we chatted away. And I just thought, this is a really interesting job because it's the antithesis of Rebus. I thought, if I write about these, these characters, these complaints detectives, nobody will think they're getting Rebus with a different name. It ain't Rebus light. Fox is such a different character. To do that job, you've got to be mentally, philosophically very different from a rebus. You're careful, you're cautious, you're measured in your responses. You cannot cross the line at any point. You've got to work well in a team. You've got super amazing amounts of power. You can run... Um, uh, you can have a van sitting outside with surveillance equipment in it outside a cop's house for, for weeks and months, tracking their every move taping their phone calls, getting their logs of their, their cell phone conversations, watching what they do on their computer at home as well as in the office, doing all of that. You're almost like a spy. You're like a voyeur, a professional voyeur. So where Rebus is a bull in a china shop, Malcolm Fox is very safe and cautious. Now, the challenge for me, I thought, well, I, I, I like that. I like that setup. 
how to make that an interesting character. We like our maverick cops. We like our rule breakers. We don't like people who are cautious and careful and nice. So the first book, The Complaints, was me trying to make him an interesting character. And having accomplished that in my own mind, I then gave him more to do in the next book, The Impossible Dead. Um, but then when I got an idea for a book that was a cold case and became Standing in the Man's Grave, and I thought, well, it's a cold case, Rebus works cold cases, therefore I'm suddenly bringing Rebus back, Fox went from being the protagonist to the antagonist. He wasn't the hero of that book, therefore in some ways he was the villain of that book. He was trying to stop Rebus coming back into the police. Now, reader said to me, oh, what a shame, because I liked Fox in the two Fox novels. Now you bring Rebus back and I don't like Fox anymore. So the new book is an attempt to rehabilitate Fox, to make people like him again. And he's in this kind of interesting situation where his time is up in internal affairs and he's coming back into normal policing duties, normal detective duties. He needs allies, he needs friends, he needs people who are not going to hate him. And he finds somebody in Siobhan specifically who he thinks, well, this is a good person for me to, to, to get close to. Um, and he's useful to her, she's useful to him. But, but then there's also this relationship with Rebus, and, and, and she tries to stand between the two men. She's almost like a referee in a boxing match. I think she says that actually at one point when they have their big meeting in the back room of the Oxford bar, she's kind of holding the jackets, you know, while they, they square up to each other. It doesn't quite come to fisticuffs, but it's not far off it. Um, so there's just this lovely triangle. I mean, it's a, it, these are human beings. They don't feel to me like stereotypes or cardboard cutouts in a way that occasionally in thrillers it used to be the case that your main character could be. Your main character was just a way of pushing you through the story. It was all about the plot and not so much about the characterization. But these characters live and breathe for me. And they live and breathe in a real living, breathing city. And that's the, the other interesting thing, is that you've got this main character of Edinburgh because the, the action takes place in a city that is organic and also changing around them. So you've got changing characters in a changing situation, a changing political situation. So, yeah, it's all interesting. And, I mean, I'm, I'm glad it is. I mean, you know, because the, the problem with writing a series is that, I th you know, and I've read books that have, you know, long-running series of books, and you think to, the author maybe should have stopped a few books ago. The best books are behind you. And I also, honestly don't feel that about Rebus and Siobhan and, and Fox. I still think the best books hopefully are still ahead of me. I, I agree. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to the next one in, in this series. And I think you talked a little bit about Edinburgh as a character. And I love the landscape and the cityscape that you create because it's a kind of a combination of really rude and rough nature and rude and rough human habitation as well. I mean, the two butt right up against one another. Sure. I mean, what you've got in Edinburgh is you've got a city of great wealth and great poverty, of great power and people who feel entirely powerless. You know, it's the, it's the centre of politics in Scotland. Um, it's, a, it's the centre of the, the legal fraternity in Scotland. Um, it's a fantastic tourist destination. It's a place with great tradition and great history and great culture. On the other hand, it's also a place of uh, poverty and, and, and violence and an underclass and people who feel disenfranchised by all of this. And structurally, that's there. The, 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 the centre of the city where the tourist goes and the visitor goes... You know, they wouldn't see any of this poverty or any of this violence or, or crime. It all happens on the outskirts. The, the city is ringed by what you would maybe call projects or housing estates or schemes, we call them. Um, but as a cop, somebody like Rebus or Siobhan has access to both of those. 
the kinds of books that I write allow me to explore the interaction between what I call the overworld and the underworld. And it's just, I mean, someone like Rebus is more likely to give a small-time crook an even break than a lawyer who's broken the rules or a politician who's broken the law. He will go for them. He'll go for the jugular because they didn't need to do it. There was no rational reason for them to do what they did. They just did it for greed, maybe. Um, they didn't do it out of necessity. So you've got, but you, in Edinburgh, you've got that kind of lovely blend of, of, as you say, people rubbing shoulders, the rich rubbing shoulders with the poor. And again, structurally, the city is it's the, two, the two towns. There's the old town and the new town. The old town was the original city, which stretched from Edinburgh Castle down to the Palace of Holyrood um, and dates way back in time to the early medieval times. And then in the late 18th century, it was becoming overcrowded and it was becoming unsanitary. And the very wealthy people who lived there decided to move and they moved a little bit further north with a loch, a lake, separating them from the poor people. That has now been drained in as Princess Street Gardens, but originally it was, a, it was a physical barrier. And they built this thing called the New Town, which is late 18th century. And it was a place that was built to a rational design. It looks almost like an American city. It's got almost a grid system, whereas the old town is higgledy-piggledy, just roads built as and, as and when, um, and buildings just constructed wherever. And so you've got the rational and the irrational. You've got what I, I, I call the, the Jekyll and the Hyde. Um, you've got this kind of place that is a place of, of, of where um, order reigns, the new town, and the old town where it's all about chaos and disorder. And Robert Louis Stevenson, when he wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, he was a child of the new town. He grew up there. His family were, were engineers. They worked in a rational um, industry. They, they were people of science, people of learning, but he was attracted to that kind of chaos. He was attracted to the chaotic nature of human life that he would find in the old town. And as a young man, he would tiptoe out of the house at night and tiptoe up the hill to the old town to consort with vagabonds and beggars and prostitutes and poets and, and drunks, you name it. Um, and he found a character, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that was based on a real person, a guy called William Brodie who was a gentleman by day, a member of the establishment. He was a, a, a craftsman, a woodworker, but by night was a burglar. He had a, a gang and he would break into your house and hit you over the head and steal your valuables. And he was eventually hanged. And Robert Louis Stevenson, as a child, had a wardrobe in his bedroom, which is now in the Writers' Museum in Edinburgh, built by Deacon William Brodie. And his nursemaid would tell him the story, this guy who was one thing by day and another thing by night, who was Janus-faced. And that burrowed itself into his subconscious. And then later on, he came up with Jekyll and Hyde. And, you know, that to me represents the Edinburgh I've been writing about ever since I started. It's a, it's a city that is a Jekyll and Hyde city. And many cities are. But structurally, it's there in Edinburgh. You've got the old town and the new town. You've got the Jekyll and the Hyde staring you in the face. Rebus and Vox. Yeah, or Rebus and Cafferty, the villain who runs Edinburgh. I mean, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. I use that, that opposite thing quite a lot in the books. Um, uh, I've, I used it in the, very, in the very first book, which was meant to be an updating of the theme of Jekyll and Hyde. Rebus comes up against someone who was almost like a brother to him at one time who's now out to destroy him. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and these sort of opposites, uh, these tensions between these opposites, there's actually a phrase for it. Uh, it's a great word to use at Scrabble. It's called the Caledonian Antisyzygy. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. Okay, I know there aren't enough Ys in the Scrabble set for you to play that word. But antisyzygy is basically being where extremes meet. 
it's like that bringing together of extremes. And Scottish literature has done it throughout the centuries. That sounds like a key literary technique. That's uh, that's a fantastic word. It's a great word. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about where you see the series going from here. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm hoping that it's going to come sooner rather than later and uh, because the characters are so appealing. And the thing, too, well, is the sense of humor in this book. This book is funny, and that's hard to pull off. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's funny because the the situations and the characters allow it to be funny. And you know, as I hang around with cops, and they do have a fantastic black sense of humour, a very dark sense of humour, as a way of coping with a job. Um, And and that sort of gallows humour certainly comes across in the book, but only only because Rebus is the kind of guy who will use humour against you uh, if he can, and and will will. you know, tear you apart with a joke. And he comes up against some people who are very good at it as well. Uh, there's a colleague of Foxy's who's uh, Tony Kay, who gives as good as he gets. Uh, somebody said to me, I did an event last night, and someone said, I'd love to see Tony Kay, more of Tony Kay in the next book, because he's got a great sense of humour, and he can he can come up against Rebus and trade him blow for blow in the puns and the jokes. Um, what happens next, I don't know. As I sit here with you today, I have, I have a possible title for a possible future book, but I've got nothing else. I've got no theme. I've got no plot. I've got nothing. Would it be a Rebus book, a Fox book, Siobhan? I've no idea. Would it be a standalone? I don't know. Will I write another book? I don't know. Um, I'm taking this year out. I'm not writing a novel this year, partly because I'm just really tired. I need some. I need some time to get to get to let the muse descend in a kind of weird sort of way instead of me chasing a story because I've got a deadline after deadline after deadline after deadline so normally at this time of year when I'm touring the US I'd be scrabbling around looking for the next plot because I know I've got a June deadline for the next book but this year I don't Um, I'm out of contract that's my choice and I'm going to wait for the great idea to come to me so it could take a little bit of time could take a little bit of time and my wife is determined that I will take a year off now we talked last time about some uh, movie and uh, television adaptations. Have those uh, gone further? Uh, I got the rights back, so nobody can make any more Rebus films until I'm happy that they're not going to do it as 45 minutes, which is what they were getting towards at the end. I'm waiting for a six-hour... I'm waiting for a nice Scandinavian TV company to come and offer me a six- or ten-hour Rebus film. So, no, at the moment, I've got the rights and nobody can make any more. I did do um, a one-off film called Doors Open that was filmed with uh, Stephen Fry in the main role, and that was good fun. What I did this past year was I, I wrote my first-ever stage play, which was um, premiered in Edinburgh in September and was about contemporary cops, a woman chief of police on the verge of retirement, um, trying to trying to deal with some loose ends and also trying to deal with some issues in her personal life and her home life with her family. Um, and that was a huge success, strangely. But nerve-wracking. I'm not sure I would do it again. Totally nerve-wracking. Because there was so much that can go wrong on any particular night. Once a novel's written and published, there's nothing can go wrong with it, right? But when a play is written, that's just the start of the process. And on any particular night, an actor can forget a line, a prop can go missing, a door doesn't open, an audience member's taken ill. Uh, you know, just the lights go wrong, the sound effects go wrong. It was a huge, complex production. It ran for 20-odd 20, 20 performances um, and it went down really well. 
but I'm not sure I could do it again. Film and TV much more appealing because with the, with the with the play, man, I I sat there in the audience night after night just on tenterhooks, hoping it would all go right. Nothing would go wrong tonight, please. Nothing go wrong. Did you find yourself changing the the text of the play or the parts of the play as it's, as the performances went? We did. By? We did. Yeah. If you'd gone to the first preview, there were more bodies on the on the ground at the end than there were at the second preview. We just looked at it and we thought, this is ridiculous. It's like Jacobean tragedy. We've got a, 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 a set strewn with corpses. So uh, one character who was dead at the end of the first night was alive at the end of the second night and remained so. We cut scenes because it, it was running longer than we wanted it to. And what got me was the actors would deal with that. would say, well, actually, we're just cutting your scene. I'd go, okay. Because um, they, they knew by that stage that, that, that if it had to be done, it had to be done. Um, and it was, I mean, it was great fun. It was a fascinating learning process, sitting in on rehearsals, costume fittings, talking to the fight coordinator, the guy doing the music for it, the guy doing the lighting effects, the people behind the scenes putting out the props night after night, the, the stage, you know, people giving stage directions and that. It was absolutely fascinating, but a very collaborative process, and I don't do collaboration terribly well. I like to be God. Novelists are allowed to be God, and once you start collaborating, you ain't God anymore. I've been speaking with Ian Rankin. His new novel is Saints of the Shadow Bible, of which he is the God. Thank you for joining me, Ian. (laughs) Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.